0: Hello and welcome to PointCast, the podcast where we talk to active voters about the issues that matter most to them and encourage legislators to not only listen, but to act on what they hear. With us today is Ms. Kimberly Powell, a lawyer and a nurse who has worked on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome Ms. Powell and thank you uh, for sharing your voice with us today. Appreciate it. Thank having you for me. having me. Now Ms. Powell, You have a unique perspective as a frontline essential medical worker and as a lawyer with a legislative interest or with legislative interest. I want to talk about both perspectives. But before we dive in, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you where you started and how you got to where you are today?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I've always been uh, someone that was interested in the academia, um, if you will, and uh, I've known as a child, um, I think that I um, at least wanted to go to law school. Um, Just to clarify, I have a Jewish doctorate degree, but I'm not practicing law. So there is a difference between actually when you say being a lawyer and having a JD. Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: So I am a nurse JD, and um, I went to nursing school first, and I think I... um, have always been drawn to the medical side as well as to the legislative side of healthcare, and I kind of got mixed into um, following the legislative uh, arena a little bit better in my last year of nursing school. My last year of nursing school, I kind of followed um, the Indiana cloning bill, which um, used to come up all the time every, and it would get uh, you know vetoed every time um, because there are some some. Um, real bioethical um, concerns around cloning. And um, so that's kind of where my interest kind of got started. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to nursing school first, worked as a nurse for a long time, went to law school here um, at Indiana University School of Law. I did practice law for a while, and then I've kind of made a full circle back into healthcare and trying to, I'm currently trying to bridge the two.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, I want to talk a bit more about this pandemic that we're kind of still in we're in this gray area the pandemic caught our medical systems and our hospitals by complete surprise as a medical practitioner working on the front line when did you discover that you and others on the front line would have to do things differently in response to what was starting to happen Mm
1: -hmm. well one of the key things that you just said um i don't necessarily think is 100 percent um factual and that is that it caught the healthcare professionals um, by surprise Mm -hmm. Um, and I say that because very candidly because you know we have not seen um, the COVID-19 virus before okay but we have seen um, epidemics before if you will and we have seen H1N1 and we see the flu and how the flu kills people every year in this country Um, we just have not managed to give the right information to people. We have not managed the proper resources to properly take care of healthcare providers on the front line. Uh, certainly we did see similar um, concerns with the elderly, um, the people that they consider in this pandemic to be of the uh, most affected uh, populations. We have seen that even with H1N1. Um, back in 2008 and 2009 we did see that back then Um, we saw a shortage of personal protective equipment back then with H1N1 we just tend to not see ourselves as a nation uh, learn from our mistakes um, or learn from history you know we we saw the flu epidemic of 1918 we hear people talking about that and comparing that to you know this pandemic today Um, history tends to repeat itself we just have not properly put resources in the correct directions um, to take care of people um, in the communities um, Mm -hmm. those that are most affected and uh, in the area to help um, the healthcare providers to take care of those people who are the most affected.
0: Whose responsibility is it to one, communicate the information that you say was lacking and should have been communicated, and two, to supply uh, medical practitioners with the supplies that they needed in order to safely address uh, this pandemic as it was starting to unfold?
1: Mm-hmm. I don't think that that responsibility lies in any one specific entity. Um, you know, because you have hospitals at large, um, you know, you have to use common sense, even from a leadership perspective, um, even in a hospital setting, for example, in the most populous cities that we have in this country, for example, we saw how badly it affected people in um, the state of New Jersey, how badly affected people in the state of New York, those two states alone, you know they have so many hospitals that are there, and it's a ve- those are very populous states, um, if you will. Um, I I feel like that those hospitals have the onus as well as the legislature there. Um, those politicians have the governors. Those places have the onus placed on them to make sure that if we do have any type of pandemic, you know, what is our load? What can we handle? You know, mm-hmm. what can we safely handle? Do we have, you know, a process in place? Do we have enough equipment? Do we have enough um, healthcare providers, if you will? Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, and I say that because, you know, and even looking at those particular states, it goes abroad to all states across this country. You know, what do we do if we have, you know, a national disaster you know that affects all people all across you know this country you know we saw how um, our response teams uh, were affected with 9-11 you know we did not have enough we, it seems that is the the trend we always look retrospectively at situations that happen in this country and reevaluate on what we'll do the next time but we never follow through mm-hmm. because post 9-11 we didn't have enough equipment you know we didn't have enough first responders we didn't have enough enough of anything you know mm-hmm. and we and it's not even just in a pandemic or even you know my example of nine eleven. you know we see this happen year after year in California you know where they have forest fires mm-hmm. there's not enough firefighters to go around to go and assist them you know we there's not enough um personnel to help evacuate those people. There's not enough places for those people to go to. Um, You know, there's, we just do not set up um, and in the expectation of not if a national emergency will happen, but when it does, how ready are we for it? Mm -hmm. That's what we do not prepare for in this country. Okay, I wanna come
0: back to that. But before I go into that a little bit deeper, I wanna go back into the patient experience and the families experience when dealing with this pandemic. A lot of us have looked on the news and we'll see families because they couldn't visit having video calls with their relatives who are in various states of, of on, you know being on the mend. Um, but very few of us actually knows what type of toll this, this virus takes on the human body and how a person even got to the point of even being hospitalized. Could you describe to us what it's like for the patient and what the body goes through when it is attacked
1: by this virus? So there are various uh, numbers of symptoms that um, patients have, and I do believe it is based off of several things. One, I believe it's based off of the comorbidities that the individual has. For example, are they placed into that population of people um, that could be most affected? that's one two it I also I also believe that it affects individuals based on how healthy or where they they are in their comorbid um, you know chronic states of illnesses for okay. example okay. Um, so if you have somebody who is already on oxygen you know or someone that that is already, Um, largely respiratory compromised Mm -hmm. um, and they come into contact with someone I also believe that it's based on virulence Um, at what point was the contact in um, their phase of having COVID-19 You see what I mean? So Oh,
0: I see, yeah. Yes, based
1: off of how sick they they were when you came into contact with that person Mm -hmm. and based off of how sick that person was with their own chronic illnesses or even some some other type of acute illness that they may have been experiencing, you know, I think it depends on how sick the individual is and the symptomology. You know, for example, um, I do have um, a family member by marriage um, that was just released from uh, rehab on um, Friday, and that wow. family member was in the hospital, was on a placed on a vent, taken off a vent, placed back on a vent several times wow. since the early part of March, um, and so you look at how long that, that span has been, yeah. you know what I mean, for that particular family member, mm-hmm. um, and I do think a lot of it has to do with, you know, um, for the patients, you know, they're frightened. They're frightened. You know, we, you know, if you are a lay member, when you come to, and and I say lay member of the population, I mean, someone who is not a healthcare provider, someone who doesn't even go to the hospital, you know, that's not a worker in a hospital setting. Um, You know, a hospital can be a scary place. You know, it's the fear of the unknown. You really don't know what happens in there. And so people really do want their family members to be able to be there with them, and they cannot in this pandemic. Um, so, you know, when the patient starts to have any kind of symptoms, you know, the most common I think is fever, chills, mm-hmm. um, you know, which makes people, I think, stay home a little bit longer because mm-hmm. they think, oh, maybe I just have the common cold right. when they don't default to, instead of maybe I just have the common cold as in maybe I have COVID 19 and maybe I should try to seek care now. Right. Um, they wait until they get, um, more ill if you right. want to have more symptoms mm-hmm. and then by the time they get to the hospital um, you know they're dropped off by their family and their family can't come in and so they don't know what's happening you know mm-hmm. they they are afraid they have no one there and you know we like a buddy we even like a buddy when we when we want to have a coffee we right. like a buddy when we want to exercise you know right. we we like someone there even if they're just more for, for moral support right. but in the hospital setting um, it can be a scary place because again you know The hospital professionals are coming and telling you, this is what we're finding. And if you don't understand or don't have anyone in your family that you can bounce that information, you know, across to help you make that decision, you know, you're just pretty much at the mercies of those who are caring for you. And so it can be very scary.
0: How do you, oftentimes when a person is in the hospital, um, medical practitioners have to make adjustments for treatment and that requires that they ask permission of the patient or they get some sort of sign off. How has that been happening during this pandemic, especially with people being vented or being unconscious uh, for a span of time? Who, who does that for them?
1: Usually the next of kin. Um, for example, if it is um, a husband or a wife, um, they will usually go to, you know, that other spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's uh, a minor, of course, so you go still to do parents. That. You
0: still are able to. Yes. T- How are you doing that without the family being there? Are you is this all virtual as
1: well? Mm -hmm. A verbal consent is as good as any consent, Um, you know, and that that practice is the common practice and has been in a hospital setting. For example, you know, outside of this pandemic setting, you can have a family member that could deteriorate, you know, and they're not on a ventilator and they could deteriorate. Something can happen and they start deteriorating at two o'clock in the morning um, and need to be placed on a vent. That physician um will notify the family usually usually it's not even the physician usually it is the nursing staff right. that will contact the family and say hey your family member is experiencing a turn for the worse, wanted to see if you want to come into the hospital, you know right now, um, you know I may not be able to call you back or what have you, Mm -hmm. Um, but if and if they say no I can't get there for whatever reason say okay I will call you back Um, they will probably be placed on a vent or they may even say the physician will call you back we're working on them and it may not be that the next call that they get they may not get any more information until they do get that call from the physician saying you know, they were not able to breathe on their own. And so we placed them on a ventilator.
0: Okay. So you are able to progress and you're not holding these steps up on the formality of trying to get in touch with people and do a a formal sign off. You're able to take the verbal consent. No. Okay. Okay. That's probably a very, very good thing.
1: And if that is happening, it should not be happening. Because again, you know, the the goal is to treat the patient Mm -hmm. um, and do what is medically necessary for that patient and try to get some consent from someone. And if you cannot, because you have to understand there these things happen to people when they're a John Doe or a Jane Doe and no consent is taken from anyone because we don't know who to get consent from in a hospital setting, in an emergent setting. Mm-hmm. Certainly if a family member is dropping someone off um, because they are that ill, um, or if an ambulance picks someone up at a home, they should be obtaining that information when the, when the ambulance goes to that home, who will be the person that the hospital can call um, to give updates and to talk to? They should be obtaining that information.
0: Right. Um, do you foresee any little litigation or legal ramifications that might grow out of this, particularly where there might have been a death when uh, healthcare workers had to progress to move forward to save a life, but in the process lost that loved one? Have you all, have you had to deal with that yet? or Has that come up?
1: um i think that that has come up and i will be honest and say the the majority of what i have seen as far as um people even considering litigation is the absence of care people are um, complaining from what i can see from the mass public and especially in the minority communities that they believe that their loved ones have been turned away i've seen um you know, several um, articles um, and research about where family, where, where people of color have been right, turned right. away, trying to obtain care and have been turned away, have been and, and turned away two and three times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then by the time they come back, they are so ill and that these, these family members have died. These patients have died. And so their family members are voicing um, concern that people of color are not being allowed or given care, to right. the extent that they are requesting.
0: And that leads really to my next question. There has been a lot of discussion about the disparity uh, in communities of color, particularly the black community. And I, I have a two part question for you um, along that, the, those lines. Are, is it from, from what you've known and from what you've researched and from what you've seen, is it that the people of color, black people, are they being tested, showing a positive, going through the care given to everyone else? and dying at a higher rate? Or is it that they aren't getting the testing at an equal rate or what have you? They're tested after they're too far gone and then they're they're dying. Or in some cases, we don't know that they have COVID until after they've died, okay? That's the front part of that question. The second part of that is, are you yourself seeing this disparity?
1: Mm-hmm. So with regards to testing, I think one of the things that um, on the front part of your question that people have to understand is that when we first started out um, with COVID, there wasn't enough tests to go around for anybody that's that's number one that's just a blanket truth then we had another issue the other issue was is that we had a lot of quote-unquote scams drive-by testing testers setting up in parking lots i know for a fact that this happened in louisville um, and the attorney general um, for kentucky got involved in this because these pop-up scam artists were popping up in vacant parking lots and telling and charging people, you know, a hundred dollars to come and get your COVID test because, you know, there's a mass hysteria. Everybody wants to be tested and want to know that they have it or don't have it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, for lack of a better, um, term out of ignorance, wanting to go back to their quote normal way of life, thinking that once I'm tested negative, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there, initially there wasn't enough testing, um, going around. That's number one. Um, And I think the testing was largely being reserved for um, people who were um, very ill um, to see if they had it so that you would know that when they came into the hospital, okay? Mm -hmm. I I have seen, um, and I'll answer your second part of that, I have seen large numbers of people, black, white, all colors being turned away from um, hospital settings, okay? being told to go home and do a self quarantine without being tested. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was again, a part of that initial phase because, you know, you can't test everybody that says, Hey, I have a fever because you may have a fever, but you may not have COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can have a fever with the common cold. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's just, it's just the degree of the fever and what type of organisms that you do have growing or not growing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I have seen large numbers of people that were turned away away early and were told to go home and self quarantine. Mm-hmm. And and typically when people are turned away or discharged under those circumstances and are not tested, what they are told is if your symptoms progress or if they get worse, come back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. That's okay. what they're told. So right. that was early on. Okay. Um to the to your point of a disparity, um, I will say I do believe that there is a huge disparity in um, the African-American population in access to care, and and um, I will say even in believability, um, and I do think that that, is, that comes from a, prim- a premise of racism, because Blacks aren't considered um, to be educated people. Mm, I see what you're saying, yeah. Um, they aren't considered to know enough information. So you're saying
0: that pre- medical practitioners aren't necessarily believing them when they're coming in in saying that they have certain symptoms. Absolutely.
1: Or... Okay, I got. Absolutely. You. Um, and and not even just um, you know I don't I don't want to throw any particular um, type of provider under the bus mm-hmm. you know and say well this is only happening with doctors or this is only happening with nurses this is happening on the front end um, mm-hmm. this is happening all around um, mm-hmm. you know there there are you know EMTs medics. Um, you, you know what I mean? There, it's it's just that we as a people are not taken seriously um, about our own care and about our own symptoms. Um, mm. And because of that, and I've experienced that. Mm. Um, you know, how do you begin to change?
0: Family? How do you begin to change? You did you did mention to me a situation with your own family? Could you share that story? Yes. Um, please.
1: Yes. So my uh, my grandson, when he was about two years old um he was in daycare and he um he had been sick um just a just a runny nose kind of thing and then by about friday of the week um his symptoms had changed i would say thursday night going into friday morning he started to have a fever um and just was just not eating very well um very irritable and so i told my daughter to call The pediatrician you know i said you know you don't want to go into a weekend and not at least having looked at if if they can work him in so she did she worked the the pediatrician Mm -hmm. um worked him in and saw him Mm -hmm. you know did the common things looked at his ears looked at his throat listened to him the whole nine yards and said you know, you know, and he did have a, a higher grade fever. Um, it was, um, like, I think around one-on-one point eight. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, continue, you know, the normal things alternating with the ibuprofen and the Tylenol. However, this particular pediatrician, um, he was my kids pediatrician. So he knew me very well as mm-hmm. the grandmother and as the nurse. So he knew me very well with my own kids. Mm-hmm. And so he did say, Of course, if he gets worse, go ahead and take him to the emergency room. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, by about Friday night, um, he just didn't seem like he was doing much better. Saturday, um, he was not doing better at all. And my daughter said to me, Mom, um, he looks like he's struggling to breathe a little bit to me. Mm -hmm. So I got my own stethoscope and listened to my grandson. And I told her, I said, you need to take him to the emergency room. I said, he has a pneumonia. Mm -hmm. I could hear it. Mm -hmm. And um, so we went to um, a local emergency room. I Mm -hmm. went with her and we were two black women and a little black little baby boy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we had on hoodies, you know, it was chilly out. We had on hoodies and, you know, tennis shoes, those kind of things. And, you know, we went. So -hmm. as soon as we got to the emergency room and the doctor came in, He asked my daughter, he hadn't even listened to my grandson, hadn't even laid a hand on my grandson. He was sitting in there in the room um, just to get a history. Mm -hmm. And he asked, does he go to daycare? Mm -hmm. And so my daughter did acknowledge that, yes, he does go to daycare. And he said, oh, he just has the daycare bug. And he kept going on and on. You know, this is going around. It's a bug. He just has a daycare bug. So I interrupted him and I said, well, what exactly is a daycare bug? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he looked like he was offended. Um, And this was a, a white physician, male mm-hmm. physician, and he looked like he was offended. Mm-hmm. And um, I said to him, I said, I, I'm a nurse. Mm-hmm. I said, and I listened to him at home and I want him to get a chest X-ray because he has a pneumonia. I said, he has a left upper lobe pneumonia and I want him to get an X-ray. He said, well, okay, we'll do that. And so he got up and he walked out. Wow. And Um, The short of the story is that they did x-ray my grandson, and when the doctor came back in, he apologized, and he said, well, he said, "Um, I'm sorry, he said you were correct, and not only were you correct, he not only has a left upper lobe pneumonia, he said, but he has a right middle lobe pneumonia as well. Mm -hmm. He said, so, um, we will be placing him on an antibiotic, continue doing the things that you are normally doing with the Tylenol, Advil, and what have you, um, and he was treated and he was released, Um, but, you know, to, um, you know, to wrap that story up, I don't know how many Black Americans, again, we have represented as people that were not believable Mm
0: -hmm. for some
1: reason, Mm -hmm. you know, was it because we're Black females with a Black child, you know, and, I, I don't know of any bug in any medical textbook that's called a daycare bug. <laughs> and that's why I asked him, what exactly is the daycare bug? So because I... Possible misinformation. Well, I mean, I knew what he meant, you know, mm-hmm. because kids in daycares are germy. You know yes. what I mean? They wipe their nose. They don't wash their hands. They touch right. each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they one gets sick. They all get sick. They come home and pass it. I knew what he meant. Mm-hmm. But as a uh, as a family member that is going to pay okay for an emergency room visit Mm -hmm. i need you to drop your racial disparity and i need you to treat us as believable Mm
0: -hmm. and so
1: we did not present as people that were believable um and he only asked one question you know does he go to daycare what difference is that that was it Wow. And I had to direct the care for my grandson. And the unfortunate thing is that I do believe that that happens in large numbers. Okay. I do believe it does.
0: Right. So you just, that was not a unique experience. And you've, you've heard of similar situations you said with other people, I believe. Not exactly like yours, but similar.
1: Yes, and I remember taking care of a black female um, when I worked at a local emergency room. I remember taking care of a black female that was 49 that presented with chest pain. And um, I went and told the physician, I said, I believe this lady's having a heart attack. He said, how old is she and is she menstruating? I said, she's 49 and she is still menstruating. He said, Nah, she's not having a heart attack. Then he went on to educate me about the protective factors of, you know, hormones in women that are under 50 um etc and um he had already been in the room with this lady so he knew who i was talking about and i gave him the rhythm strip Mm -hmm. um from her cardiac rhythm strip to show him no she's having a heart attack Mm -hmm. um and um and she was so um i just think that we need to drop the scales from our eyes um, if you will as far as color is concerned and treat everybody as believable
0: we really need to spend some time on talking about just that, and I'd love to have you back to talk about that, but we're going to wind down here. We're, we're getting short on time, so I want to close with a couple of closing questions for you. Um, November is right around the corner, um, and I understand that there are other issues on your heart as we go towards this election season. Uh, what are some of the other issues you would like to see addressed as we move into November?
1: I'd like to say truth and transparent (laughs) truth and transparency Um, you know I I think for any political candidate you know one of the things that I've seen is I've seen the African American community at large um, pick apart both candidates um, that are there and regardless of what we do one is going to be elected in November. Uh Um, that's, that's the reality. That's our process. And that's the reality. Uh And I do feel that we as people of color need to unite and we need to come together and we need to decide as a people of color, what are the things that, um, that we know that a government can do to make change on our behalf. Mm-hmm. And the only way that we can do that is by coming together on a grassroots level mm-hmm. and making those decisions. You can't let someone else make a decision for you what's important for you. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, I I would like to see in November some of those things be put on the table, um, What what are important to us as people of color. You know, we we need better access to care. We need better access to education. We need better access, you know, to um, higher education in sciences. Um, You know, our our African-American and Hispanic um, children um, largely are left out of STEM programs because the inner city schools don't have the funding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to support that type of knowledge base for those those kids. So by the time they get to high school, you know, they are way behind. And many of them do not go on to college in those areas. So that's why you don't see as many African-Americans, you know, that are coders, um, you know, that are web developers. That's why you don't see that, you know, or Hispanics. We, mm-hmm. they, they just, I work in that area right now um, mm-hmm. in another um, position, mm-hmm. and you just don't see it and i think that i would like to see funding go towards those arenas for education.
0: Right now, you you've alluded to it. We have Vice President Biden and President Trump as the the two obvious choices. Who's carrying your vote right now and
1: why? Um Biden is carrying my vote right now mm-hmm. and um Uh, Again, I see a lot of people say I'm not going to people of color say I'm not going to vote for him unless he picks an African-American female to be on the ticket. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't necessarily know that America is ready for an African-American female to be on the vice presidential ticket because America was not ready for a white female to be the president. Mm. And so because America's not ready for a white female to be president, they certainly are not ready for an African-American female to be vice president, I believe. Okay. So you I think a
0: white female has to would have to break through before a black female or any female of color, perhaps?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that because I'll be honest with you. I feel like if Michelle Obama ran, she'd win. <laughs> I'm just saying because everybody loved the Obamas. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like uh, if Joe Biden would pick Michelle Obama, I think that, you know, the majority of Americans would vote for him anyway, because, you know, they want something with that character and integrity of the Obamas, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, left when they left, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, Joe Biden is carrying my vote um, for a couple different reasons. Um, and I know that he's been under fire recently over, you know, a comment that he made um, that irritated people in the black community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm i not going to say I'm giving him a free pass on that. I'm going to say I understood what he meant. Okay. Um, and I think that's fair to say that, um, given that that's what we've heard from Um, the Trump supporters the entire time that he's been in Um, when he's made things that didn't sound quite right, or that sounded racial, everybody gave an excuse and said, well, that's not really what he meant. So Mm -hmm. I'm not going to change what um, Biden meant. He apologized for what he did say, but I'm going to say, I did understand what he meant. And when he made the statement that he made, Mm -hmm. he's carrying my boat because um, I do feel like that he has been a civil rights activist in his career He's mm-hmm. done a lot of things to promote um, equality mm-hmm. um, for blacks, mm-hmm. and I think that those are things that we can't forget. Um, you know, not only that, again, Biden was vetted, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. he he's. I, I say we we are inventing a new wheel, and there is no reason for it at all, okay, mm-hmm. because we loved the obama biden um bromanship if you will because that's what everybody called it the bromanship we loved it but now suddenly we're looking at him different as if this is a different joe biden that was the vice president to president barack obama so in my mind he's already been vetted okay he's already done that has been close enough in that role as a vice president and i think he's ready
0: Okay, well, with that, we will let that be the last word. I want to thank you again, Ms. Powell, for taking some time to share your voice. Uh, And to our audience, I want to thank you all for listening, and please continue to support our frontline medical practitioners and all essential workers. This podcast is brought to you by Eliad Productions, a studio for podcasters and musicians, and PointCast News. To listen to any of our podcasts, please go to our website at pointcast.news or visit us at Apple Podcasts. Also, be sure to follow us as we share updates on this type of story and all political news on our Facebook page. And with that, we are out.